Welcome again to our study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We are in uh, chapter 4, and we're beginning with verse 4 this evening. Glad you're here with us, and let's begin with prayer. Father, we are grateful to you for your mercies to us and your love, that you have reached out and you have redeemed us and brought us to yourself by your grace. We thank you, Lord, for our Savior, Yeshua. Yeshua, we address you as our King as our Savior, as our risen Lord, and we bless you and thank you. We are so grateful for the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, we address you as one with us and enabling us to walk in the path of righteousness and to maintain our faith. We know that it is your work to bring us ultimately to eternity, where we will forever be with you, with the Lord forever. So, Lord, I pray that as we study these verses tonight, that they will be a blessing to each of us, and that as we study your word and as we come to understand it and put our trust and faith in what you have said, then we know that we have trusted you, for your word endures forever. And we thank you for that, Lord, and we bless you. I pray for each one who has come, that this might be a time of refreshment and blessing and even of introspection at times when needed, that we might more and more become the people you intend us to be. And we bless you for this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read this time. Uh, we always read the chapter as a whole. And I'm reading out of the uh, New International Version. As I've said before, it's not my favorite, but it does have some interesting uh, translations, and I know a lot of people use it, so I think it's worth our reading it. Okay, here we are, chapter 4 of Philippians. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with you, Suntike, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be accredited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Messiah Yeshua. To our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Messiah Yeshua. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Messiah Yeshua be with your spirit. Amen. Now, obviously, I have substituted uh, Yeshua Messiah for Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't have any problem with Jesus Christ as uh, a translation of Yesu Christu, but um, I like us to be reminded that uh, there was a, and is, a Jewish aspect to our Lord and Savior as he came uh, into this world. And so I, I like to substitute that when, when, uh, when I read. Okay, so we're beginning with verse 4. Uh, we went through 1 through 3 last week, and so we're just starting up with uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. So Paul now begins his conclusion to this epistle to the Philippian community, and he emphasizes the very admonition with which he began this letter. It seems as though, in my understanding, that Paul had this very much at his heart from the very beginning, because he had learned this lesson, as we just read in the fourth chapter, of what it means to commit himself to the Lord in all circumstances, whether he has much or whether he has almost nothing, to trust the Lord and to rejoice in him, and to live for him and to serve him. So he began in the, the first chapter, the first verses of uh, chapter 1. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. He was praying with joy. And he, he uh, takes that theme now and brings it into this final closing aspect of the epistle. Moreover, he has emphasized that one of the inevitable components of exercising genuine faith in God is that of joy. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You know, this is a very important point that he emphasizes throughout the epistle, as we've seen. But it is that our life in Yeshua ought to be one of deep-seated joy. It doesn't mean that we don't have troubles and sorrows. But it means that in the midst of this fallen world, we can continue to cling to him and to know that what he has said is true and that we are in him and he cares for us and he will care for us right up to the end when we leave this life and go to be with him. Well, to rejoice is simply to express one's inner joy. Or, in our verse, Paul's inspired words are a command set forth in the eternal words of Scripture. 
In doing so, he gives us the source of true joy for the believer and identifies such joy as a sure characteristic of all who are truly encompassed by God's saving grace in Yeshua. There ought to be always a component of joy. It isn't that we walk around with a smile on our face all the time or that we are unable to uh, grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn. No, that's, that's all very appropriate. But ultimately, even our uh, sorrow can turn to joy when we have committed ourselves to God and to the fact that He has promised, and His promises are sure, that He would care for us, that He would bring us to be whom He wants us to be, and that in that we would give Him glory and praise and honor. We would reflect His goodness, and that's, of course, the primary goal of any and every believer. The source of our joy is God Himself. That is, the saving work he has accomplished through Yeshua and the inevitable reality that all whom he redeems are guaranteed eternity with him since the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has been given as the down payment. And it's the Greek word Aravon. The Aravon, which is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Aravon, of our inheritance and thus our eternity in the very presence of God is guaranteed. Now, we read in 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 21-22, this is where this Greek word is used elsewhere in some of Paul's epistles. Now he who establishes us with you in Messiah and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Ruach, the Spirit, in our hearts as a pledge. Now there's the word Aravon. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Ruach as a pledge, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. And then in Ephesians 1.13-14, we read, In him, that is, in Yeshua, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, an aravon, of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So what is a pledge? It's a down payment. And we've all had the situation where we've had to put a down payment on something that we were intending to buy, and we they waited until we could get the full amount, and they promised to keep it for us until such time as we were able to do that. Well, that is exactly what the Spirit of God is who has been given to us, who dwells within us. He is the pledge, the down payment, that God has redeemed us. And when God puts a pledge or a down payment on something, he will inevitably bring that something to himself. And we are that something. We are his bride, the bride of Messiah. But what is Paul's meaning in our text when he exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord always? Clearly he is not teaching us that we should never be sorrowful. For the scriptures command us to weep with those who weep according to Romans 12.15. And Paul himself, in this very epistle, speaks of the sorrow he experienced during the severe illness that came upon Epaphroditus. We read in our epistle here, in Philippians 2.27, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. 
So here, as he watched his uh, his disciple, one of his disciples, Epaphroditus, uh, sick even unto death, well, Paul felt the need to sorrow with him, of course. That would only be what should have taken place. So when it says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, he's not saying that the life of the true believer is one that never has sorrow or one that never experiences grief. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that the rejoicing takes a different form. It is rejoicing in that God is in control and even in the midst of sorrow and even in the midst of heartache and troubles, we can cling to the truth that God is our God and we are His, and He will inevitably bring His will to pass in our lives as we cling to Him and we seek to walk in the ways that He has commanded us to walk. It is clear then that when Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord always, he's not equating rejoicing with the human emotion of happiness or joy. You say, well, you can rejoice even when you're not happy? <laughs> yes. Yes, you can rejoice that even in the, in the woes of life, we cling to the reality that God is in control and he has promised that he would bring all things to his glory, including our lives and our walking with him and our ability to give him praise and honor. We know that it doesn't simply mean that the believer no longer has, uh, the true believer who matures in the faith is always happy and never sad. <laughs> no, we know that's not the case, but there are some I know in certain uh, uh, parts of the Christian church that pretty much teach this prosperity gospel kind of a thing. That if you truly are born again, if you're filled with the Spirit, if you have the gifts of the Spirit, all of the sorrows of life will go away. Everything will be right and good and happy. Well, Yeshua himself sorrowed at the death of Lazarus, even though he soon would raise him from the dead. We read this in John 11. When Yeshua therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then you just have these two words, Yeshua wept. If Yeshua mourns at the sickness, at the possible death, or the death of someone who is a friend, Yeshua wept, he cried in this fallen world, and he without sin. So we know that Paul can't be telling us here that we are commanding us by the Spirit of God in these inspired words that we should always be happy. No, we can always rejoice. But rejoicing encompasses all of life if we come to the conclusion that God is in control and no matter how dim the, the horizon looks, no matter what comes, we can always trust on Him to bring us through and in that to know that He has loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, it is important, first of all, that since rejoicing is commanded, it is not to be equated with the emotion of happiness or demands the believer to never experience sadness and sorrow. Rather, what Paul enjoins upon us is the exercise of our faith, and thus the unmovable reality that God is in control and will bring about his sovereign will 
including the means by which those who are his will persevere through whatever trials they may face and do so for his glory. And isn't that where we should gain our greatest joy? That even in the difficulties of life, even in the hardships of life, we can endure them by his grace and by his strength, and in so doing, give him the glory. In short, to rejoice is to affirm the truth of God in all of his glory and power, and to continue to confess that nothing can separate the child of God from his all-controlling love, omnipotence, and grace. You see, his love is combined with his sovereign power. Omnipotence means that there's nothing that is too big for God. He is able to do all that he intends to do, and nothing can stay his hand or ask him what he does. And he has given us grace upon grace. That's proof that he loves us. Rejoicing, then, is the fruit of exercising one's faith in God, even when the fallen world in which we live may bring sorrow. And, even in times of sorrow, the believer in Yeshua is enabled to lay hold of that which brings settled joy by exercising the gift of faith. So, where the flesh and the enemy would like to take those things which drag us down as really putting us down and making us ineffective in terms of being witnesses of God's wondrous grace, we know that he is defeated. And he knows it too, but he's too, uh, what should I say, uh, too deceived to admit it. Are we in a war, a spiritual war in this world? Yes. Our, our war is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness and so forth. But even in the midst of this conflict, we can rejoice. Why? Because we know the outcome will be for God's glory. And isn't that to be what we ought to have as the primary goal in all aspects of our life? This is again why the Reformers chose sola gloria as one of the five things that were essential to the, the uh, Protestant Reformation. Sola gloria means everything is to be done for the glory of God. And when we keep that in mind, we have a great ability to rejoice. Well, he repeats it, and he says, again, I say rejoice. He repeats the command to rejoice, karete, undoubtedly for emphasis. Since our verse begins Paul's conclusion of his epistle, and since rejoice, karete, uh, could be used as a formalized greeting, some have suggested that Paul's double use of the word in our verse could be understood as an ending salutation. In fact, one modern translation, which I do not recommend, the New Testament and American translation renders our verse as goodbye and the Lord be with you always. Again, I say goodbye. <laughs> well, that's not even possible in the context. Granted, if you take the word out of the context, you might be able to force this meaning upon it. But this has no basis whatsoever in the current context. Paul is simply emphasizing that the life of a true child of God will inevitably be characterized by a persevering faith that lives out the hope and certainty of God's all-controlling power and promises. And I think that, uh, well, I hope, that if not all of us, most of us, have witnessed this not only in certain aspects of our own lives, but in the lives of other believers. 
when my uh, father was on his deathbed. Uh, I saw that that glow of of true faith and a true resilience, trusting that God is in control even of the numbering of one's days. And I saw it again in my mother. After, after my dad passed and my mother was there, she had a lot of troubles, a lot of difficulties, but she remained faithful to the Lord. And she continued to praise him for all of his goodness to her and to all of us who were children. So, this idea that it just says goodbye, no, or, uh, no, this has no basis whatsoever in the current context. Paul is simply emphasizing that the life of a true child of God will inevitably be characterized by a persevering faith that lives out the hope and certainty of God's all-controlling power and promises. And now, I'm sure that I'll reiterate this numbers of times, but and this is why it is so important for us to be immersed in the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God, that the Scriptures are the inspired words of God, that He, by His Spirit, carried along the prophets and the apostles so that what they wrote was what God intended to be written, and we may therefore take the Scriptures as the very words of God. This means if we are going to rejoice in all aspects of life, regardless if it's difficult or regardless if it's wonderful and exactly what we had hoped for, the ups and the downs of life, the situations that come upon us over which we have no control, then we are to rejoice that God is in control and he will first give us the strength as we wait upon him to bear up and to persevere through the difficulties and will give us the very heart to rejoice in him and to give him the glory. So it is this very truth that should encourage the believer in Yeshua to be fully engaged in the study of the scriptures in order to know the truth of God and to constantly affirm their trust and faith in him. You see, when we know the scriptures, the Spirit will bring those to our minds as we need them and as we seek to walk in their truths. This, likewise, is enhanced by a fervent and regular life of prayer together with a commitment regularly to gather together in a community of faith in order to encourage and be encouraged in the faith. These are the essentials. Prayer, the Word of God, communion together with one another, serving one another, so that we may be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, and we might face the contingencies of life with a true heart of faith and ability to trust Him no matter what comes. He says in verse 5, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Having admonished the uh, Philippian community and us to rejoice in the Lord's almighty power and love, he now connects this with how we treat others. He first describes the overall demeanor of the believer in Yeshua as having a gentle spirit. Now the NESB has gentle spirit to translate the Greek that is there in front of you, to epiakos humon. The Greek word epiakos can carry the sense of not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom that is yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant, not always having to have it your way. 
not becoming upset if everything isn't exactly the way you want it. That's what the uh, lexicon means by not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. We always do it this way. How dare you change it? Well, that kind of attitude doesn't get us anywhere. We need to be strong. We need to be sure that what is right we admonish others to. But we need to be yielding. We need to be gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant, recognizing that not everyone is on the same uh, path, the same uh, mode and level of their faith and so forth. Paul's point, therefore, is that we should approach others with a general welcoming demeanor on the basis that all have been created in the image of God. Granted, this calls for wisdom, but Paul's emphasis here is that we resist the fleshly tendency to prejudge others based upon our own personal list of criteria. Well, the NASB gentle spirit could more fully be understood to mean not prejudging others on the basis of one's personal likes and dislikes. I guess that can be summed up in what the NASB has as the gentle spirit. The gentle spirit doesn't mean one can't be strong in what they know to be true, but it's how we come across with it that sometimes puts other people off and causes some kinds of uh, dissension and and, uh, some kind of disruption between one another. He says, be known to all men with this gentle heart. This is particularly necessary within one's own believing community. Rather than requiring others to conform to one's own personal likes and dislikes, the goal ought to be to help one another become more and more like Yeshua and to live out a life of obedience to God's commands and instructions given to us in the scriptures. Instead of having to always have it my way, well, I'd rather do it this way, and why can't we ever get, you know, we need to do it this way, and so forth. Well, it's uh, obvious that what we had last week, that there was this dissension that was going on in the Philippian community between these two women. They probably had uh, some kind of a very important role within the community, and they disagreed, and people began to take sides. Isn't that the way it often is? When two people are at odds with each other, then the friends of each of those two you know, divide and become against each other. This is precisely what God does not want in the ecclesia. He wants us to help one another, to come alongside one another. And at times we have to confront each other, but we do that lovingly and with hopes and prayer that our confrontation will be to the good of us all. Do we have that in mind? Do we have that goal? It seems as though many times what I've seen in communities is that those who have an agenda try to find ways to get that agenda uh, going. And if someone else doesn't like the agenda, they would rather do it a different way. And then there's this somewhat dissension. Hopefully it can be worked out, but many times it doesn't. It doesn't work its way out. What is the what Paul is telling us here is it starts with having the humble, loving approach to others. Not expecting everyone to do it the way I think they should. Now, obviously the scriptures lay down guidelines. If someone is going contrary to the scriptures, then there ought to be those, one that goes, and if they don't hear the one, then two, and try to help that person come back to the truth. 
But there's too many things in human um, relationships that can be slightly different that one likes and the other hates. And we have to learn to be gentle, to be open-hearted towards one another. So once again, Paul emphasizes that the family of God is made up of those God has chosen from every nation as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is fundamental to maintaining a growing and vibrant community, for all too often divisions that occur within a given community arise from people judging each other on the basis of their own likes and dislikes. Rather than forcing one's own preferences upon others, the goal ought to be for all to becoming more like Yeshua and to help each other move toward that goal through loving encouragement and acceptance. It is by this and the gracious work of the Ruach that we are enabled to build each other up in the faith. Oftentimes, a pleasant word, a humble word, will put the uh, the kibosh on the eruption of anger and so forth. Well, it is by this and the gracious work of the Ruach that we are enabled to build each other up in the faith. Isn't that what our goal should be? Now, not everyone has the same approach to everyone, but God has made us so that some of us will have a better approach than others to a given situation or a given uh, persons or something. But we ought to have as our goal the building up of the other and not simply getting our own way. And then he makes this point, the Lord is near. This phrase echoes a similar phrase, the time is near, in John's uh, Apocalypse, that is the book of Revelation, which likewise emphasizes the coming of Yeshua as he promised. Note, for example, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. We read further in the epistle of Jude this same emphasis on living with the expectation for the coming of Yeshua, the bringing together of all things to a conclusion. He, we read in Jude 1, 20-21, and of course there's only one chapter in Jude, but he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua Messiah to eternal life. So, the time is near would mean that the reason it's put that way, because obviously that's uh, what is meant by near. Well, how about a couple thousand years? With the Lord, one day is a thousand years. So it's not that much. Time doesn't factor in. But the point simply is when he says uh, Yeshua is near, that he is near, it could mean, and probably does include the idea, that we ought to be constantly looking for his coming. Now, I know that in our human existence, when we don't see it and we don't see it and we don't see it, we have a tendency to become kind of calloused to that and say, well, probably not in my lifetime. No, we're to live with this inevitable possibility that Yeshua can come at any time. He can bring about the things necessary that the scriptures say are going to happen before he comes. He could do that in a in a very quick fashion. We've seen this in, in world history, right? We've seen wars come and go and change all kinds of things in a short period of time. 
Well, surely he can. And this is the question that now comes to us in our text. How fervently are we anticipating, waiting for, and longing for the coming of our Messiah? Do we sometimes give in to the uh, weakness of our own thinking that, wow, I don't know, it's been so many, so long since he was here, uh, I don't know when he's coming back, but probably not in my lifetime. That's not how we're to think. We're to consider the very real possibility that he could come in our lifetime. And we ought to be preparing for that, looking forward to that, and ready for it. But Paul's words here may also emphasize not only living with the expectation of Yeshua's imminent coming, but also of the reality that by his Ruach, by his Spirit, he is always with us. And he may therefore even have the words of the psalmist in mind. When the psalmist in Psalm 145.18 reads, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So does it mean his coming is near, or does it mean he is always with us? I think the answer is yes. We need to understand that the Lord is with us. The Spirit of God dwells within us. He is near. He's not something that's uh, that's far away. He is an eminent part of our lives. He is the very aspect of life as it ought to be. So both aspects which this phrase engenders are true. We are always to live with the expectation of Yeshua's coming, as well as knowing that we now live in the very presence of our Lord, even as he promised his disciples before he ascended to the Father. He says in Matthew 28:20, And look, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us now. And James gives us a similar admonition. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I think it's very easy in difficult times, and I grant that, uh, you know, politically and uh, sociologically, we're having difficulties in the world right now. Not nearly as difficult as they could be or have been in the past, but people are, uh, even in here in our own country, there's all kinds of governmental uh uh, restraints being put upon people uh, that sometimes uh, threatens their, their very livelihood and so forth. Well, how do we live in that? And how do we rejoice in that? How can we rejoice when things seem to be topsy-turvy and in some cases getting worse? We do so by recognizing, by rehearsing, and by believing with our full belief of faith that Yeshua is in control. God is the one who is in control and he will remain in control and we can trust him for that. And that's where we grow in our ability to trust him and to grow in our appreciation and great glory that he has in our lives. So, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul's words here echo Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, I think, in Matthew 6, in which he employs the same Greek verb, which in these contexts carries the general sense of be anxious, that is, be unduly concerned. Remember, Yeshua teaches us, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't care for yourself. Of course it means you should do all that you could to care for yourself, because... We're created in God's image. 
But don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And of course the answer is yes. Yeshua came to die for us and rose again for us that we might forever be with him. Yeshua characterizes such anxiety one's, as one's inability to know what the future holds regarding the necessities of life, which are represented by food and clothing. He then compares the manner in which God maintains the lives of mere animals and offers a call the Homer argument to show that if God is concerned about the animals, how much more would he provide for his own children? And call the Homer means light and heavy. Okay, so what does he say? What's the light part of it, as opposed to heavy? God feeds the birds. If that's true, then wouldn't he take care of us? And the answer is yes. Why? Because we are far more important to God than even the birds. And why? Because we are created in his image. His own son came as one with us, one of us, participating in human flesh. So if God is able and willing to feed the birds, how much more is he concerned and ready and able to care for us. That's why Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Thus Paul likewise gives the inspired command, be anxious for nothing. But by this he is not dismissing the need to be diligent in our daily work in order to provide the necessities for maintaining our lives. In other words, you know, people could have in the past have taken from this verse and others like it saying, okay, well I'll just go do whatever and God will meet my needs. I'm just trusting God. I don't have to work. No. He also taught us if a, man, if a person doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. It doesn't mean that everybody has to work, but that it means within a family there have to be those that are breadwinners, if we can use that term. And when we're unable to and others want to help us, that's fine. But when we're able to do what would bring in uh, the necessary funds and so forth, then we ought to do it. So he is not dismissing the need to be diligent in our daily work in order to provide the necessities for maintaining our lives. Rather, he is emphasizing that all we have and all we need are supplied by God as we walk in faith and obedience to him. Well, if God doesn't supply it, then we must not need it. As long as we're being faithful to him and doing all that we can according to his ways to do what he intends us to do. If we work and we're successful, that's because God has given us the ability to do so. And moreover, when the future seems bleak and troublesome, we can count on him to supply our needs as he has promised. That's the, the heart of this text, that Paul is reminding us what it means to exercise our faith in trusting God. He says, But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, then he goes on to say, let your needs be known to the Lord. The words in everything make it clear that there is nothing which comes into our lives that is outside of the circle of God's provision and care. 
in every situation, in every issue that confronts us, our God will aid us as we trust in Him and bring our lives under submission to His will. I don't think there's any of us who haven't, at times, and, and maybe off and on and still do, consider what will the future hold and begin to wring our hands and say, how will I deal with this? How will I uh, bear up under this? And so forth and so on. But it's at that time when we must come back to what we know to be true. O oh Lord, my life is in your hands, and I'm glad to leave it there, and I trust you. For what will come, I have no idea what it will be, but I trust you that you indeed will supply everything I need and aid me to accomplish what you want me to accomplish. Well, it seems possible that Paul is using prayer here as the overall definition of the access we have to God through Yeshua in all aspects of prayer, in everything by prayer and supplication. Then this broader term is narrowed by the word supplication, which means to request something from God. Then finally, he adds, with thanksgiving, indicating the true heart of faith, which knows that God is attentive to our prayers and will always bring about what is best for us according to his loving and sovereign will. In other words, when we pray, we finish prayer with the real sense, number one, God has heard us. Number two, he will bring about what is his pleasure. And when he hears us praying, he brings us to pray for what he intends to do. And that's another wonderful thing, to seek to be led by the Spirit of God in our prayers for what God intends to accomplish. Moreover, as Paul teaches us in, in his epistle to the Romans, lack of gratitude characterizes those who are heading toward idolatry. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Gordon Fee makes this good observation. Thanksgiving is an explicit acknowledgement of creatureliness and dependence, a recognition that everything comes as gift, the verbalization before God of his goodness and generosity. If prayer as petition indicates their utter dependence on the, and trust in God, petition accompanied by thanksgiving puts both their prayer and their lives into proper theological perspective. When we pray, we... And when we request of God, we don't say to ourselves, or shouldn't say to ourselves, when he brings it to pass, I'll thank him. No. With prayer and thanksgiving. In other words, when we pray, we say, thank you, Lord. I know you have heard me, and you will bring about what is best for me and for your glory. So he says, let your requests be made known to God. One might rightly ask why we would need to make our requests, our burdens, and even our praise and thanksgiving known to God. For surely the all-knowing one comprehends all things and is need of no one to inform him. But Paul's admonition here, a truism that runs through the pages of the scriptures, emphasizes once again that our God is a relational God. He waits for his children to address him, to worship him, to honor and praise him, and to make known to him their love and adoration as well as their needs and problems. We are in a living relationship with the God of this universe. It is life with and in him 
by means of the Spirit that more and more characterize those who are his. And that's what Paul is joining upon us as he did uh, upon the Philippian community. As these words have been preserved for us, that we need to reconsider how we approach God, how often our prayers come to him, how we combine our requests with thanksgiving, knowing that all that we request, he will accomplish according to his will. Maybe not exactly the way we think, but he will bring it to pass. And that's where verse 7 comes now. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah, Yeshua. This verse begins with and, which means it is directly linked to the previous context as showing the final and ultimate result of thankful prayer. God hears the prayers of his children, and in their coming to him, he not only meets their needs in accordance with his all-wise plan and purpose, but he also strengthens them in their faith, enabling them to be brighter lights in this dark world. It is a clear communion together, friendship together, knowing him and he knowing us, and bringing about all that he plans and all that he intends. And we are privileged to be his children and his workers to bring about what he desires. The peace of God is the shalom which he possesses and gifts to those who are his, as Paul teaches us in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have a relationship with him that is noted as peaceful through our Lord Yeshua Messiah. He is no longer our judge. He is our Redeemer, our Savior. This peace enables the sure and enduring knowledge that the believer possesses, knowing that they will never be rejected by him, but that they are secure in him. This also means that when those who are his become wayward, he will discipline them as an act of his love, bringing them back to the path of righteousness. I suppose we've all been in situations where we were aware of uh, a father or a mother that simply said, no, we, we decided we're never going to discipline our children. We're going to just love them into being good. Well, we know that doesn't work. A loving parent rightfully and carefully and with good measure disciplines the child who disobeys. And God is that same loving parent. So even when we need to be corrected, he's showing us his love. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So this is a a love which surpasses all comprehension. <laughs> a peace that he brings to us. A peace that we have, and we can't fully explain why we have such peace, because all of the uh, circumstances would, would th- think that we would be otherwise. Well, this peace that he gives surpasses all comprehension. This phrase could mean that God's peace is so great and so comprehensive that the human mind simply cannot grasp it completely. But more than likely, Paul's point here is that God's peace is so beyond the ability of the unbelieving mind and is therefore rejected by those who have no saving faith. In other words, it's so far beyond the unbeliever to comprehend. You know, like you're 
you you're you Christians are just uh, walking in some kind of a fairyland, and it's not for real. And yet we know it is real because we have experienced it time and again. When God has uh, given us the strength to continue forward when things were going very poorly. Of course, even believers are not able to comprehend the fullness of God's greatness, which in this context includes the peace he gives to those who are his as their faith is deepened and becomes more and more that primary characteristic of their lives. Yet the storehouse of his peace cannot be measured. This is what he means, beyond comprehension. This means that here Paul is teaching us that there is nothing we will face in our lives that can eclipse the gift of God's peace as we commit ourselves to him and grow strong in faith. It doesn't mean that we won't have sorrow. In this world you'll have tribulation. But what does he say? Be happy, be of good cheer. God has overcome the world. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we will have tribulation. Yes, we will have difficult times. But in it all, we can come forward as being very much strengthened by God and given a peace which goes beyond understanding. So he says, this peace which goes, which is incomprehensible in its fullness will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Paul uses a military term here to envision the manner in which God guards the heart of his child. The Greek word phrureo was used of those soldiers who, quote, maintained a watch, thus providing security over people and possessions. And we find this not only in biblical texts, but we find it in, in Greek texts, uh, ancient Greek texts, where they talked about those who were, this was their living. They were guards uh, in, in so many different ways. The peace which God promises to the believer in Yeshua experienced through a growing faith in who God is and what he has done to redeem those who are his, is that which guards the hearts and mind of the believer. For by faith we believe that God is able to do all that he has promised, regardless of what may be our current circumstances. Nothing is too difficult for God. Do we believe that? Well, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes it's very difficult. We have to stop and... and uh, Put down our weaknesses and say, Lord, you can do this. You can do all of your holy will. There's nothing that's too difficult for God. Well, in the Semitic world, the heart was considered the seat of one's thoughts, commitments, faith, and decisions. The heart, therefore, was the governing factor in the area of obedience and growth in faith. This is what we read in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, your, your decisions come from the heart. The mind was considered the source of one's physical life, and thus to guard the mind would have meant in the Semitic world to guard one's whole being, that is, the final outcome of one's life. And all of this, ultimately, is summed up by Paul's words in Messiah Yeshua. It is our union with him that not only secures our eternal life with him, but also enables us in our lives here to be his witnesses and those who give him the honor he deserves, shining his lights in this darkened world. Thanks again for coming, and look forward to being with you, Lord willing, next week as we continue our study in this epistle of Paul to the Philippians. And I hope that you all will have a good rest of the week and a good Shabbat.